Tonight's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good evening. Welcome to Grace Downtown. My name is Jason, the pastor here. And we're so glad that you have chosen to worship with us on this beautiful day. Um, We are continuing, as you just heard from Laura's reading and, and the reading I just read, that we are continuing in our series in Hebrews. Uh, We're in chapter 9 tonight. Um, It is a good thing that we have a systems engineer running the projector. He got it up by the the last song there, the last couple of songs. So thank you to Daniel for working hard to get the projector working. If you would, grab a Bible. Um, As I was putting together the sermon for tonight, I kept going back to this idea of this is really more of a Bible study than a sermon. Um, And I believe God has some really good things in here for us, um, but uh, there's really a lot of study and digging into the word that we need to do here tonight. We have a lot to cover, first of all, uh, chapter 9, which is 28 verses. Um, So we have a lot to cover, but also just the nature of what the author is talking about here in Hebrews 9. He's really building off a number of principles from the Old Testament, and he's really expounding on what Christ has done for us. And so there's a lot to cover and a lot of principles to kind of uh, a foundation to build, to build off of. Um, But one thing for you to note is that it will help you to follow along. Uh, much of the scripture will be up on the screen, but it will help you to follow along. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and open up to Hebrews 9. The other thing to know is that we are just going to scratch the surface of ultimately what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. We're really just going to look at one aspect of it here tonight, whereas Pastor Steve is going to take us through a much more expansive understanding of why Christ had to die. It's very important that we understand that for tonight's scripture, but then it's really going to go into detail next week. One of the advantages of preaching through books of the Bible, one chapter at a time, one section at a time, is these arguments build off of each other, which is great, but it can make individual sermons or individual reflections or chapters difficult if we don't know what came before or what is coming next. So uh, if you follow along with me, um, I think we will accomplish a lot more. So if you want to open there. The feeling of losing something is one of my least favorite feelings. You know that feeling when you can't find your keys? Uh, you can't find the thing that you're looking for that makes something else possible? I, I particularly hate losing something when I, I think I'm ready to go and I have everything ready and then I'm, it's the minute that I need to leave in order to be where I'm going on time and I have everything that I need but I can't find my keys. 
Isn't that the worst feeling? It's a a very anxiety-ridden feeling uh, when you look around and you can't find it and you're scrambling around and you start, the the clock is ticking in your head and you're thinking about how late you're going to be or what am I going to do if I don't find this thing at all? This can be a really anxiety-ridden experience when you're talking about your keys. But do you ever feel like you are searching for God and you can't find him? For you, maybe it's an intellectual search where you're trying to discover, is there a God in general? Uh, But if you are a follower of Christ, you can still have the experience of not feeling the presence of God. It may be you're going through a hard time or possibly a difficult emotional season or circumstantial season, or maybe it's just a tough time for all of us in our society. But we go through seasons where it just feels like something is missing in our relationship with God. We feel like we are doing something wrong or maybe God has changed or something has changed and we just can't wrap our minds around things that we used to be able to. Or maybe it's at an emotional level. We just don't feel certain things that we used to feel in our relationship with God. When these things happen, we can start to wonder, where, where is God? We go on this search for those feelings, those thoughts, those emotions, those concepts that help us wrap our minds around what does it mean to have a relationship with a holy God. As we open up Hebrews chapter 9, we see what Christ has done to make sure that we never have to go looking for him again. Would you pray with me and for me as we open up God's word tonight? Father, we look to you because you have words to speak to us. God, you have much to say to us tonight, and we pray that we would be willing to listen. We pray that you would prepare our ears to hear and our minds to understand and our hearts to believe. Give us hands and feet ready to obey you. God, help us to be a people that are eagerly awaiting your second return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1, there's going to be certain sections where we're going to skip a little bit faster, and I'm going to summarize, and then other verses we'll, we'll read together. So Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So it starts out here by referring to the first covenant. If you've read through Hebrews or if you've been here for our series, you know that this is referring to the old covenant that we find in the Old Testament. The way that God met with his people, the way that uh, men and women atoned for their sins, that's what he's speaking of here. When we read, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, we can imply two things. One, the author of Hebrews is about to describe to us some of those regulations And it is also implied that the new covenant has regulations for worship as well. So that's what we take away from that first verse. Then as we continue on through the next few verses, verses 1 through 5, we see the details of what it looked like to meet with God. We see the regulations from that first old covenant that the author of Hebrews is referring to. We see what it took for them to set up an arrangement where they could meet with God. There were external things that they needed to do. They needed to set the stage in order for them to meet with God. They also needed to prepare their hearts. They needed to do external things to atone for their sins so that they could, the external setting could be ready, but also their, their, 
actual bodies, their external bodies, could be ready to worship God. So in the first five verses here, we read what those regulations looked like for meeting with God. Let's read verses 6 through 10 as the author gives us a little commentary on these regulations. Verses 6 through 10. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The author is telling us here straight up that those old regulations for the first covenant, the old covenant, only existed to clean the outside of the person. It gives us the limitation right here. It does not purify the conscience of the person. It's just cleaning up, as Jesus said, the outside of the tomb or the outside of the cup. It's taking care of the external sin. It's setting the external table for man to meet with God. Man has always looked for, how do I meet with God? Because from the very beginning, God and man were in the presence of each other. Man was in the presence of God. We are made to be in the presence of God of God, with nothing interfering with that presence, where there didn't have to be any regulations for worship. That's what we're made for. We are made for that perfect relationship, that perfect fellowship with our God. We were never meant to have to go looking for the presence of God. And in fact, when Adam and Eve sin, God comes and he says, Adam, where are you? God and man, the the presence, the nearness has been broken due to sin. We were never meant to have to go looking for our God. We were made to always be in his presence because we were made for that perfect relationship with God and others. You know the story, due to sin, we then were separated from the presence of God. And in the Old Testament, he makes these regulations and these ways for them to meet with God. So in the Old Testament, in this first covenant that the author is telling us about, God meets with man. And that's a really gracious and merciful provision for them, that they would have any way to meet with their God. But here the author is saying that it's limited. It was never intended to totally atone for the sins and clear the conscience in the way that we need it to be done. Because here's the issue. We have a problem that is external. We can't come into the presence of a holy God because we are not holy. So even our our clothes, our body, our flesh is unclean before God, but that's not the only problem. We also have an internal problem. There's something going on at a heart level in our spirits, in the, the throne of where we are, all that we are, there is something wrong. And that also has to be purified. The good news is that verse 11 starts with the word, but. But. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation. We see now that Christ makes a way. Christ makes a way to deal with what is wrong internally. Christ makes a way for us to be in the presence of God all the time. Not just meet with him, not just the priest meet with him in a tent, not making sure all the externals are right, but he's done something internally for us that has made it possible for God to come and dwell inside of us all the time. All the time. Where we don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to clean the outside. We don't have to get all the externals right. We can have the presence of God with us all the time. This new covenant has regulations for worship too. This new covenant, still a sacrifice, is needed to atone for sins. A death still has to take place. Blood is still needed to purify our sins. An intermediary between us and God is still needed. There is still a righteous perfection and a holy life that is still needed. But we read in verse 11 that Christ offers them all. Everything that we need in order to be in the presence of our God. Continue to read with me. Starting in verse 12, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purifications of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus came and he took care of what was internally wrong in you and me and mankind. He came and he offered us the righteousness that we need. He offered us his very life in our place. He offered his blood spilled on our behalf. He comes and he purifies us in our innermost parts. And he secured for us an eternal redemption. Not an occasional redemption, not a circumstantial redemption, not a redeeming the outside circumstances or the external qualities. He came and he offered an eternal redemption. Because unlike the priests who had to make that sacrifice year after year and those priests who would eventually die, Jesus made a once and for all sacrifice and in a couple weeks we are going to celebrate that he didn't stay dead. He offers eternal redemption. So then, because of this eternal redemption, inside of us can be purified, and then we can have an eternal home. A home with God. A home that is not taken away. A home with him. That nearness to our God restored because of the work of Christ. That's what this passage is talking about. Verses 15 through 22 is what we don't have tons of time to get into. The whole chapter 10 is about verses 15 through 22. But a few things that the author is saying here. He's saying many, many things that Steve will unpack um, next week as we go through chapter 10. 
But he is saying that Jesus' death was needed to change us internally and to secure that eternal redemption for a few reasons. One, it, it is offered to us like a will and it's enacted to us. The benefits of death are enacted to us only when the person that is guaranteed the will dies. So all the righteousness of Christ, all the eternal redemption, all the heavenly kingdom to come could only be secured when the one who guaranteed it died, and that's Jesus. We're told in the New Testament that the Spirit is then sent to dwell within us, guaranteeing our inheritance. The author is talking about that. Here, we also read in verse 22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what the entire chapter 10 is about, and that's what Steve is going to touch on next week. In Hebrews 6, 6, if you remember, it says that those that walk away from the faith, those that walk away from the fellowship, are re-crucifying Christ all over again. That's what it's talking about. Our sin and the will of the Father, Acts 2, 23, says that it was the foreknowledge of God and the evilness of man that put Christ on the cross. The evil deeds of man and the foreknowledge of God are what put Christ on the cross. It was our evil deeds, those people who put him on the cross, their evil deeds, and the foreknowledge of God that Christ was sacrificed on our behalf. And then lastly, we read that just as everything had to be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, we have now been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Before that priest could enter into the presence of God, everything had to be sprinkled with blood. We are told here something that absolutely blows our minds, that we and even the heavenlies have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, so now there is no distance between what is heavenly and what is earthly. Because it's been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. So that which is heavenly, Christ, can be that which, with that which is earthly, us. Hebrew scholar Chad Bird says that the old, in the Old Testament, the blood served as a purifier and it also served as a shield against the wrath of God. That's what this passage is telling us about. And then lastly, we end with the verses that we started with that I read at the beginning here, 23 through 28. We read that Christ entered into the holy places not made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he appeared in the presence of God on our behalf, and now repeatedly he is offering up his blood and his prayers to the Father, We are told that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In this passage, we see what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. The nearness to God, the presence of God, is now open to mankind. We also see what Christ will accomplish in the future on our behalf. The author here is giving us a word picture and reminding us of Christ's first coming, but then he's also pointing us towards his second, where he will come and permanently dwell with his people. Put together a slide here that walks us through these different uh, biblical stages of the presence of God with man. 
and our systems engineer has a still rocking. Good deal. God with mankind in Eden. We talked about that earlier. Then mankind meets with God through the first covenant, the old covenant. Then God comes to man in the incarnation and the person of Jesus. Then the spirit, because of what Christ has done, comes and lives inside of man, which is the church age where we find ourselves now. But then in Revelation 21 verse 3 and in John 14 1 through 3, we read that one day the dwelling place of God will once again be with man. No heavenlies separating the two, no temple to go to, no sacrifices to be made, no just only the Spirit's presence, but the fullness of God and all his glory therein will be with us forever. What an amazing grace that he has offered us, the grace of his presence. Isaiah 53, 12 tells us what Christ's blood has accomplished. It says in Isaiah 53, 12 that Christ will be numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. The sacrifice of one, Christ, is applied to the many, those who are in Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12. The author of Hebrews here gives us some commentary on the Old Testament and then Christ. Chapter 13, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Here's what that verse is saying. Jesus died outside the city gates of Jerusalem. Jerusalem where he had every right to come and sit on the throne. The throne that is rightly his because he is the king of all kings. But instead, he died a sinner's death, yet he was without sin outside of the city. He died outside the gates of Jerusalem because you were born outside the city of God. When we should be cast out from his presence, he was cast out on our behalf so that we can be at home with him. This has profound implications for our salvation, but also the way that we live our lives. I'd like us to spend a few moments reflecting on what that looks like. In verse 28, we read that this redemption is for those who eagerly wait for him. What does it look like to eagerly wait for him in light of what we've learned here tonight? Three things. First, some time of biblical and personal reflection. As we read through Hebrews, as you read through the Old Testament, as you see what Christ has done for you, what is a personal reflection, a personal takeaway that you have? We have a few weeks left 
of Hebrews. We're going to really pause on a section coming up here for Easter and the two weeks afterwards where we're going to take a look at what Christ has done and how he has formed his church. We have the rest of the spring to go through Hebrews. But at this point, I think it'd be good if you take some time for some personal reflection. And if you're taking notes or if you've got your phone, go ahead and jot something down. What is God showing you? What is God showing you about what Christ has done? What is God revealing to you about the Old Testament that you've never thought about before or that you've never understood before? What is God asking you to do in light of what we've learned here in Hebrews? See, here pretty soon, right after Easter, the rest of Hebrews is going to be all about this is what the church looks like. The new covenant church looks like because of what Christ has done. Let's start thinking that way. So what would your personal reflection be? as the author continues to connect the Old Testament to the New. If you have something now, go ahead and jot that down, but be prayerfully considering that as we continue through the book of Hebrews and as you study it yourself. Second, another implication is that the work is finished. We need, as God's people, to rest in his finished work. Have you ever been in someone's house and you didn't totally feel welcome? Like you weren't sure if you were supposed to be there. Maybe you dropped in or maybe they made it clear that maybe you weren't so welcome or maybe it was now time to leave. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? It's a really, really awful feeling. Far too often, we live with a lack of peace and a lack of joy that indicates that we think that the jury is still out on the Father's love for us. The Father, because of what Christ has done, is not sitting up in heaven and trying to decide about you. He is not still trying to make up his mind about you. He is not still trying to form an opinion of you. His view towards you, his love towards you, his view towards your sin is taken care of. It's settled. And when Christ said it's finished, that's what he meant. It is finished. And you are at home with the Lord if you are in Christ. If his death, his blood, his righteousness has been appropriated to you, then the Father's opinion of you is settled. His view of you is firm, and there's nothing you can do that will change his mind about you. We can rest in the finished work of Christ appropriated to us. We can rest in what Jesus has already finished. We so often feel like, are we really at home with the presence of God? Am I doing something that's making me unwelcome? We think back at our past sin. We think back at our failures. We look at our current circumstances. We look at our shortcomings. We look at our future. We look at all kinds of things instead of at the finished work of Christ. In order to eagerly wait for him, we have to know that we are already at home in his presence. And if his spirit is inside of us, because we are in Christ, then all the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that we need, we have access to in the Spirit's power and in the finished work of Christ. 
Lastly, let's get to work. What does it mean to eagerly wait for him? Let's figure out what it means to eagerly wait for him by seeing what it does not look like. Acts chapter 1. Please turn there with me to Acts chapter 1. It's one of my favorite stories in scripture. Acts chapter 1. We'll read verses 6 through 11. Acts 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, meaning Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. Now I'm giving it to you, and I'm sending you out in that authority to be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Jesus ascends to go to prepare a place for them, just as he promised he would in John chapter 14, and they stand staring at the sky. On one hand, I think they are eagerly waiting on Jesus, but they have their timing mixed up. I think they think Jesus went to get a snack, and he's coming right back. If they were listening to him two verses earlier, they would see that there's some work to do first. Sometimes our eagerly awaiting of Jesus or, or our weariness here on earth can lead us to stand and look up into the sky. Instead of being about what he has called us and asked us to do, eagerly waiting for him means being about the Father's business. Back in what I referenced earlier in John chapter 14, Jesus says a little bit more about where his home will be. In John 14, 23, he says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. We also read Jesus' parable about the house that's built on the firm foundation. The house that's built on the firm foundation is not the people. The people with the firm foundation are not the people that know the word of God. They're the people that obey the word of God. We're told by Jesus that to have a firm foundation and to be at home with him and the Father, we need to be about the Father's business. Eagerly waiting for him means obeying him with the authority that he has given us, with the Spirit's presence he has given us, with the final verdict on our sin, it is finished. It's going out and doing what he has called us to do. Some of our struggles in life, I would even say many of our struggles in life, is because we are not doing what Jesus asked us to do, and that's make disciples. 
make disciples who are making disciples to the ends of the earth. This is what it looks like to eagerly wait for him. It's being about the Father's business. It's knowing that the verdict on our sin has already been decided. And his spirit is living inside of us. And that authority that Jesus is talking about has been given to us. And now we can go to the ends of the earth to make disciples. We spend so much time and so much worry, so much consternation thinking about dwelling on our own sin, our own shame, our own sufferings, instead of being about the Father's business. Jesus tells his disciples over and over and over again, take up your cross and follow me, meaning ready to die for me, but I will provide everything that you need. You don't even need to take anything for the journey because I'm going to supply everything that you need. In fact, I'm going to give you more than you need and you're going to be able to share with others. This is what it means to eagerly wait for him. Jesus has taken care of our sin and he has said that it is finished. And now he has invited us not only into the presence of God and his permanent indwelling spirit, but he has invited us into his mission. He has invited us into his purposes and we get to be a part of that. And that's pretty good news. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the words that we are about to sing. Thank you that they can be true because of what Christ has done for us. Our strong and perfect plea is nothing that we can say or do on our own. Our strong and perfect plea is found in Christ and what he has done. Thank you that we can come into your presence. Thank you for your indwelling spirit. Thank you that we, as we gather here together and as we sing, we are the church gathering together as your spirit dwells in each one of us. God, speak to us now. We worship you because of who you are and because of what you've done for us.